Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Take a minute, turn the radio up. Take a seat in the pastor's office. Favorite listeners is Pastor Jonathan Mason, and I want to welcome you back into the pastor's office. Uh, we had a wonderful worship experience today at Northeast Baptist Church, and one of the things that I'm really enjoying is watching our members start to come back to church. Uh, this pandemic has robbed us. Uh, of two years. It really has robbed us of two plus years, actually. Uh, And there are some of my members that I've not seen uh, in, in over two years. And it's just a blessing to see them start trickling back into the sanctuary. Uh, and, and guess what? Here's another thing to be excited about. Spring is on the way. Uh, we've had some 50-degree-plus days, uh, and I see in the forecast that uh, we're going to be getting close to touching 60. So I'm getting my short sleeves ready uh, because I just believe that we're going to be touching normalcy again uh, this spring and summer. And I just thank God uh, for bringing us through uh, and keeping us and preserving us uh, as we prepare uh, to experience the balance of this year. But listen, I told you last week uh, that we, each week of February, we're going to be uh, profiling trailblazers in Philadelphia history. Notice I said trailblazers in Philadelphia history. I appreciate Black History Month, but I always share this with you. Uh, I celebrate my blackness 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and twice on Sundays. So, so I don't need a special month to celebrate black trailblazers. I just don't. But this month, we want to celebrate Philadelphia trailblazers, black folk in our community that have transcended race. And that's an amazing thing. Black folks in our community that have done something special, uh, that have made a difference, the folks whose shoulders we stand on. Uh, And today I'm excited. I'm excited to welcome into the pastor's office a Philadelphia legend. Uh, I grew up watching the news. I was a young person at the age of 9, 10, 11 that loved to watch the news. I loved consuming news. They were my celebrities. They were my icons, my heroes. And that's how I believe I ended up in a 27-year now career in media, now in media ownership, owning radio stations, some that are news talk. It's because I, I love the news. I got my foundation early. And one of the folks I used to watch all the time was a young lady by the name of Trudy Haynes. You know her from Eyewitness News. She started there in 1963 and gave 30 glorious years. Uh, 
I, I don't want to tell her story. I'm going to let her tell the story. Uh, let's welcome into the pastor's office a Philadelphia trailblazer, a black female Philadelphia trailblazer, an icon in media, Miss Trudy Haynes. Welcome to the pastor's office. This is a pleasure, but this is an honor also, sir. I'm very happy to hear the words that you've already passed on to me to fill me with great hope that we will regain some of the closeness that we've had with our religions, including mine, including mine, because I have strayed away also in, in getting caught up in this COVID and this uh, pandemic that's taken hold of our whole country. Absolutely. And I, I really feel honored that I've been remembered. Oh, yes. You, you, you're not only remembered, you're admired. Uh, and, and, and we're just excited to have you here on the show. You know what? I want to get right to it. Uh, let, let's talk about the beginnings. Um, let's talk about the beginnings of your career. Why don't you share with our audience how you got your start uh, in television? Well, very almost accidentally, I was at that time living in Detroit, Michigan, and there was another story for you, too, because I was working for a radio station, WCHB, in Inkston, Michigan. It was out on the outskirts of, of Detroit, actually. And it was a radio station built by two medical uh, dentists, wow. a father and a son-in-law, Dr. Haley Bell and Dr. Wendell Cox. That's where they get the WHCHB from. And I was working there as a, as a hostess, really, at the front desk to welcome people to the new station. And this was the first radio station built north of the Mason-Dixie line at that time. And there was only one other station, I think, in the country at that time that was owned by uh, blacks, uh, people of color. And um, it was, that was an honor. In fact, when they built it, I was back there putting the bricks on top of the bricks, <laughs> helping to build it. And that came about because of my relationship to Howard University. One of my classmates was the daughter of one of the doctors, and she lived in Detroit, Michigan. And when she found out that her father was going to do a radio station, I was living nearby working for the, um, I think it was the Red Cross. I can't remember now. It's one of those organizations. And she called me in and asked me, how would I like to work for her father for a radio station? Well, in those days, that sounded big, real big, for a radio station that we knew just existed in certain areas and with music, primarily with music. And so I said, sure. And that's how that started. Mm-hmm. And I worked for them for 10 years before I started in television, still in Detroit, Michigan. Well, I, I, w- I will tell you that, that radio uh, is, and I, I teach a class at Norfolk State University. I'm a visiting professor there, and I teach radio broadcasting. Radio is still relevant. Uh, but, but what some of our young people don't understand, Ms. Haynes, is how radio back at that time, in, in the 60s, in the 50s, was really the centerpiece uh, of American media. Yes, it was. You're right. And we did everything, everything by radio. And that carried me through many uh, explorations that I didn't, didn't even explore or have a chance to do in television. 
radio station was our life, my, our lifeline. Absolutely. And so then you migrated over to television. Tell us a little bit about that. That was another surprise because I, having been appointed the woman's representative for the radio station, I, I was invited to a lot of luncheons. And that was mixed with people from all of the media in, in Detroit at that time. And I was sitting at a table with a, a man who was the, uh, oh, I've forgotten the title now, but anyway, he was in charge of a, a television station, WXYZ. And he was telling the other people around the table <laughs> that he was in distress because he was losing his uh, weather girl. And in those days, all the weather girls across the country for an ABC station, they were blonde and blue-eyed. And he was very unhappy. He was looking for another blonde, blue-eyed girl. He didn't say that out, but that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And um, after the luncheon, I went back to my desk at the radio station, and I said, gee, this might be an opportunity for me. I don't know why I thought I made it. I don't know who told me I was a blonde, but I was not a blonde, and I certainly didn't have blue eyes. But anyway, I called him up, and uh, he knew me because we had just had lunch together. And he said, oh, I'm so glad you called. Do you have someone in mind that you can recommend to me? And I told him, yes, I did. It was me. And he had a little pause, and he said, well, why don't you just come on out to the station and see what happens? And that's how that began. And, 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 and he had he had to be incredibly courageous at that point oh, in time. Yes. His name was uh, Jory, J-O-R-Y. And um, Mr. Jory, handed, he handed the, the wand to me, I guess. And it, I, yes, he did. <laughs> and that's how that began. I began there as a weather girl. Absolutely. And so... I didn't so, know anything about weather. Not a thing. Right, right, right. But, but I, I'm curious, though... Um, for the, now Detroit, of course, uh, is a, you know, known to be a minority community, but I, I, I know that, you know, at that point in time, there were a lot of, uh, you know, the majority race, Caucasians watching the television station. I'm curious as to what the feedback was when you made your appearance on air. I, I really want to understand that and uh, because of the times that we were in. Well, at that time, it was also a um, rise in, in uh, African-Americans take, living there because of the car industry. It was started to boom at that time, and the stations, I mean, the uh, car dealers were fighting for leadership, and a lot of people came up from the South to live in Detroit, so it, it was even more so a center for, uh, for opportunity and jobs. And as I did learn to, the only way I was able to learn anything about weather, and I mean learning, was uh, to go out to the weather station and to learn the terminology at that time because we didn't have any of the apparatus that they have today. We didn't even have the training that they have for today. And uh, I learned the, the lingo and how to use my opportunities on air with maps and things like that to tell the the weather, both in lower and upper Michigan. And it, that was very important because they were two distinctive uh, lo, uh, localities for weather. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn all of that, the lingo and where they were. And 
I cheated a lot because I wrote on the board <laughs> that people couldn't see my little remarks on each little area that I would point to and say what was happening there. So that's your secret and mine. Okay, listen, <laughs> and, and, and the Philadelphia audience, but I think the statute of limitations has run out on that. So, <laughs> okay. So, so tell us, uh, how did you end up in Philadelphia? You had a great career going in Detroit. Well, unfortunately, I guess for me, at that time, I was the only person of color that was on TV doing weather. I don't know about anything else, but doing weather. And uh, I got a phone call about a year later of someone saying that they were from Detroit, uh, Philadelphia. They had been watching me, and would I like to come to Philadelphia to work for them? And my answer was unequivocally yes, because I'm from New York. I was born in Harlem, New in New York, and I wanted to get closer to my family. And it was an opportunity to they offered me a raise in salary, and it sounded very good to me, so I took it. Absolutely, and so you and so that was 1963, correct? Yes, that was in 1963, but I came here in 1965. 1965. Wow. And so uh, just set the paint the picture for us. It's 1963 uh, that you get the offer. You come in 1965. Paint the picture of what it was like then to be Philadelphia's first black female news reporter. Well, it was a little heavier than that because it was the first black news reporter anywhere. Wow. I knew of at that time. Okay. Um, because they used me for every time or every opportunity was presented them to say that I was from Philadelphia, but that I was the first in the country. So I, I don't know of any others. I haven't heard of any others. And, um, and so that was it. But when you say the time, it was a good time because we were coming out of a depression, and the car industry was booming. So in Detroit, it wasn't so bad. I, I didn't have any incidents. I had people calling me names, and I had people calling the phone and sending me nasty letters and things like that. But uh, only on two occasions was I actually confronted by a, a group of people who didn't like me and who wanted me off the air. Mr. Jory took a lot of that brunt from me, for me. And I think he was a very brave and a very generous person, and I, I'm sorry I didn't, though he died soon after I left Detroit, as a matter of fact, and I didn't have a chance to really give him his credit. But he was the one who, I couldn't have done it without him. And he was a very good man. So here I am in Detroit, in Philadelphia, and I bumped into the same kind of resistance even though this is a Quaker town, but um, it was here. It was here, but it was mostly through away from me. Somehow, the conf confrontation of meeting people, white people, on the same ground was not as difficult for me. And I, I, I don't know what happened or why they accepted me here, but they began to sort of accept me very much so. And I didn't have. I had more trouble and more adversity from the people I worked for than the people that I worked, I mean, with, than the people that I worked for. 
Let's explore that real quick. First of all, you're listening to Philly's Favor 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3, and we are talking to a Philadelphia trailblazer, Philadelphia icon, Miss Trudy Haynes, and we're just so glad to have you here. But let's let's peel back the onion on what you just shared about facing resistance internally. Uh, as a news reporter, I know you always want to get the tough stories. You always want to get the meaty stories. Talk to our audience a little bit about... Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, how you were treated, how you were handled. Did they give you the fluff pieces or did they throw you right into the thick of things? <laughs> they gave me everything but what we call today hard news. Okay. Uh, not only because of my color, but for, because at that time women were not accepted, really accepted in this field. I still had a resistance because I worked with a lot of men. They were the ones that got the big stories. They were the ones that got the first stories, the first headline news. Uh, there was only one other woman where I worked at CBS, now CBS. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was only one other woman who was really on camera for a length of time, and that was a lady named Marsha Rose Shestak. And she was in charge of being uh, what they call an anchor which most of our girls today face, or men too, for that matter. But she was an anchor. She didn't have to go out on stories. I went out on stories. And I had a a good selection other than uh, trauma news. That was left to people like Malcolm Poindexter and Jack Jones, and more men were sent out on those kind of jobs. So I can't give you much information on that. But the ones I went on... Well, I guess you would call fluff in those days because we didn't cover the stories like we cover today. We cover everything today. Right, right, right. But um, no one was covering all those kinds of stories today. I did a lot of fires. I did uh, accidents. I did uh, home stories. It was more home-like stories. I wasn't even uh, given the job of going for the racial stories that happened in Detroit at those I mean in Philadelphia at those times. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and listen, there were a lot of them. I mean, you were broadcasting right through the Rizzo era, era and, uh, and we know what he took Philadelphia through. Yes, I know. But there was something, uh, I don't like really to talk about it, but there was something that brought uh, Rizzo and I close together. Mm-hmm. And he respected me. Okay. I think he respected me because of the way I carried myself. I was the first uh, reporter in this city at that time to interview his wife, and she was not interviewed by many people. I don't even think anyone else did get an interview with her. Hmm. And he did allow me to do to interview his wife at that time. I had a lot of respect. I got a lot of respect from several of the organizations in the city. I think it was a lot of the way I carried myself that was so important. Yes, there was hatred. Some people called me names, not some. A lot called me names and wrote me nasty letters and things like that. But I only had two confrontations. One was with a a school, the same school that's right here on Broad and... um, uh, out in the, the South Street, the Southwestern High School. And um, they they had a lot of meetings in those days for getting schools integrated. 
and I was sent out to, to one of those meetings, and they wouldn't let me in because of not only my color but being a woman. And um, those two, that was one, and one when I went up to, oh, I can't, I didn't know I was going to be asked these things. I guess I should have read up on them That's because right. I'd forgotten, so it's been Almost 50 years now. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, you know what? Here's, here's one thing I do want to know before we kind of uh, segue here. What what was it that drove you to keep on going? I, I really want to know that. I mean, you faced racism. You faced it externally. You faced it internally. Um, you were, uh, you know, harassed. I faced it. Um, and what kept me going? Yes. The people that I lived with was very encouraging. And the, you know, it's it's hard to say. I got a lot of respect from di- different black groups and organizations, and they would call and and give me courage and tell me to carry on. But I myself, I have to say, I was not faced with things that drove me uh, to tears at night. The station got a lot of letters, threatening letters. We'll stop looking at your station. Um, if you keep her on and things like that. But I wasn't confronted myself face-to-face. And I, I often wonder about that. I talk about it a lot of times and try to figure out why. I think it's the way you carry yourself sometimes. Of course, it's hard to say that to an audience today because people certainly are being treated terribly, in fact, worse than in those days. And, they're, you know, they're... They don't deserve this. We don't deserve this. But I don't know. I don't know, Reverend. I have to be honest. No, nope, I understand. So, so here's what I want to ask. Um, Thirty years you served this city as one of its household names. Uh, you came into our homes every day uh, and told us the news of the day. At the end of your time on television. Uh, and and let's be clear, you still do a public access show to this day. Uh, I, I, I know it's been uh, hampered a little bit by the pandemic, but you still do a public access show to this day. I want to know what advice you would have for young brothers and sisters that are coming up that not only want a career in media, but want a, ta- a seat at the table of success. Uh, I, and we- I understand what you're saying, and I understand it fully. And the, the main thing I can suggest, Everyone says, you know, stick to it. Of course you stick to it if you can. The best way you know how. But education is going to be very important, and your faith in yourself. It's not just believing in yourself, but the faith that you have in yourself because you're turned away so often, and you're met with unexpected irony of despair. Uh, we're having trouble now with our youth taking their lives and, and uh, going on the deep end. So it has to be something that you can have within yourself, pride. And the pride comes from being educated. You really have to know who you are and where you came from and why you're here and what your message is to carry on to someone else. We all have to share that with someone else. So have some way that you can deliver those words and to deliver hope with someone else, not just you, but with someone else. You have to share that feeling in order to carry on. Ladies and gentlemen, she's 94 years young. 
Uh, she's given us uh, 95. Now, uh, let me correct myself. Hey, we're going to do it this way. 95 years young. She's given us so much of her life. And I want to thank you, Miss Trudy Haynes, for giving us some strong shoulders to stand upon. Well, uh, you're one of the strong shoulders. I didn't know you, but I know you're out there and I know you're doing your best. And I hope that we can uh, rekindle and take back the closeness that we had with faith. Absolutely. And belief. Absolutely. Because we have nothing else to hold on to except what we develop ourselves, and that's what, where the education comes in. You can only do that if you get it and you feel it personally. That's right. That's right. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming into the pastor's office today. And this is not going to be our last time talking. Oh, I want to talk I'm to you again. I'm coming after you. All right. <laughs> I'm coming after you for my show. All right. Well, listen, you reach out, you let it, let me know, and we'll be right there. I know you will. Do you have a choir? Absolutely. Not only do I have a choir, I have an awesome choir. Uh, um, and not only do we have an awesome choir, but I sing before I preach, too. So... <laughs> Okay, we're going to get together. All right, let's do it. I'm on on a road to helping our youth to come out of it. Amen, let's do it. And remember one thing, that since we're here, we're part of a country, and we want to make it a country we're proud of and, and proud of us. Amen. Philly's favorite listeners, Miss Trudy Haynes. God bless you, ma'am, and we'll talk to you real soon. Thank you very much, sir. Bye-bye now. Philly's favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. And we want to thank the legendary Trudy Haynes uh, for being our first guest this Sunday. Uh, But as I've shared with you throughout the month of February, we want to talk to Philadelphia icons, Uh, not just Philadelphia icons, but American icons uh, in the black community, trailblazers people whose shoulders we stand on and are privileged and able to do what we do because they did what they did. And so it is my privilege and my honor uh, to now welcome into the pastor's office uh, a gentleman who graduated from the Morgan State University. And you know, I truly do believe in HBCUs being a graduate of one myself, uh, a gentleman who served uh, as city manager, who's had so many titles, uh, during his career, uh, but the one where I became acquainted with him and uh, knew of him was as the first black mayor of the city of Philadelphia. And he was the 96th mayor uh, of Philadelphia. Uh, And it is my privilege, my honor, my pleasure to welcome into the pastor's office the Honorable Mayor Wilson Good. Dr. Good, welcome into the pastor's office. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, we thank you for giving your time uh, to be with us this afternoon. And I will tell you that the last time that I had an opportunity to actually speak to you and say hello uh, was at Cornucopia Caterers. You remember that facility, sir? Uh, absolutely. Uh, used to go there all the time. That was one of 
the favorite places I used to go. Yes. Absolutely. You that what, what my father was actually the Reverend Lee Mason Jr. was actually celebrating his 30th pastoral anniversary uh, and you were the keynote speaker for that banquet. So uh, I'm 49 now. It's been a long time ago, but it is certainly good to speak with you again and to know that you're well and doing great. I should tell you that you're younger than my uh than my youngest daughter. So I just wanted to say that to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, sir, uh, I wanted to just bring you on today. I want to talk to you about your career. Your career is really a tapestry of milestones from being the city manager from in the 60s and 70s, building public housing in our community to being elevated to the mayor of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Sir, I mean, talk to us a little bit about your journey, because uh, you came up during a time when when blacks weren't really uh, accepted at certain tables, accepted in certain boardrooms, uh, accepted accepted uh, in certain meetings. Uh, what was it like to be, and I'll say it, a trailblazer during the 60s, 70s, and 80s doing all that you did? Well, let me uh, let me start by indicating that I was born in Seaboard, North Carolina in 1938. Uh, that means I'm 83 years old at this point. And, and we were sharecroppers and my father never went to school a day in his life and therefore could not read or write. My mother finished eighth grade and there were seven siblings and we went from farm to farm year after year trying to make a good living in the South. We went to church every second Sunday in the month at the Mount Zion Baptist Church in Seaboard, North Carolina. I relocated to Philadelphia in 1954 and went to John Bartram High School. And upon my arrival at John Bartram High School, I indicated that I wanted to be an academic course. My uh, counselor told me, don't even think about the academic course, that you came from a farm, therefore you know how to use your hands, and it put me in the metal shop and wood shop. I think they learned quickly that I did not know how to use my hands, and therefore, uh, after a few months, they moved me to academic course. While there, I indicated I wanted to go to college, and the same counselor, Mrs. Hannigan, said, don't even think about college, and go find yourself a job in a factory. So when I left John Bartram High School in January of 19. Uh, 57, I went to work in the America Tobacco Company, located at 68th and Greenway Avenue in southwest Philadelphia. And I was there for uh, a period of time. And my pastor at that, at that time at the First Baptist Church of Pasco was Reverend William H. Lemon. And his wife, uh, Muriel Lemon, was a first lady. And I was a part of the Baptist Training Union there. And she said to me, uh, you don't belong in that factory. We were sending you to college. That's what they said. They didn't say, do you want to go to college? They wow. said, we're sending you to college. And they took up their dollars and worked with me and got me into Morgan State University. 
and I went on and graduated from Morgan State University in a class of 243, and I was number, I was number eight in the class and uh, took my de- a degree back to John Bartram High School and presented it to Mrs. Hannigan. And that was a pleasure to do that. And then uh, I went to University of Pennsylvania, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a master's degree, and then subsequently went on and got my doctor of ministry from what was then Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. But my life started as a black captain in southwest Philadelphia in the 6900 Greenway Avenue. After that, I became president of the Pasco Betterment League, which is a civic association in that community. And then I became head of the citywide uh, community association for a period of time. And in, and then went to work for Allstate Insurance Company. And then uh, another first lady, Reverend Netta Taylor uh, of my church, Reverend Samuel Taylor, became the pastor at that point and said to me that you should not be working at Allstate. We need to put you downtown where you can get recognized that people can see your talent. And she placed me with the organization called the Philadelphia Council for Community Advancement, PCCA. And I went there, and within a year after I arrived, uh, all of the people who were running the organization left. And so Sadie Alexander, the renowned Sadie Alexander, uh, was chair of the board, and she said to me, well, we may well make you executive director. And she said, but whatever you do, don't ask for more money from the Ford Foundation. So the first thing I did was ask for money from the Ford Foundation. And basically, at that point, asked for money to be a consultant or packager. And my my thought was that I could package a housing that churches could build throughout the city and be and and between 1968 and 1978, I helped build more than 2,000 housing units in the area, working with churches in Chester, working with churches in Ardmore and Jenkintown, and also in Philadelphia. And we built more than 2,000 housing units in that period of time. In 1978, uh, received a call from Governor Milton Schaap who recognized me from some people on his staff and said, I want to appoint you as the first African-American to the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. Uh, And I was appointed in March of 1978 uh, as the first African-American to the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. In uh, October, in fact, October 13th, in fact, prior to October 13th, uh, 1978, I became the chair, the first African-American chairman of the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission uh, and presided over the Three Mile Island uh, incident that took place and was able to uh, work my way through that. And then in the fall of 1979, was approached by the candidate for mayor, then Bill Green, 
who indicated that he was interested in talking with me about becoming the managing director of the city of Philadelphia. And so I've become the first African-American member of PUC, the first African-American chair, and I was being asked now to become the first African-American managing director for the city. I was appointed by Bill Green, and, and I think that fundamentally that was a position that was suited for me, and I was able to do some incredible things in terms of every Saturday going from neighborhood to neighborhood, uh, having a mobile office that was not in the municipal service building, but out in the neighborhood where I went out and met with people, talked with them about their problem, had meetings with my staff, not in the office, but in my mobile office out in the neighborhood so they could see what was going on. If I could, Mayor Good, I wanted to just uh, just go back for just a second. Uh, you talked about Miss Hennigan uh, and how Miss Hennigan tried to box you into certain stereotypical roles based on her beliefs and her perceptions. But isn't it amazing how when folk try to write our story and close our book, God opens it back up and writes a whole different story for us? I mean— she thought all you could do was 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 be a blue collar worker, uh, and you ended up at this point in the story as the city manager of Philadelphia. Absolutely, but 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 I think that I think that what's amazing about it is how God uses other people to help you to help carry out His plan for you, and uh, I cannot take credit for any of the things that happened to me, that every single step I took was made possible by someone else, uh, by God using someone else to uh, move me into a position uh, and to uh, at least introduce me to people who had the power to appoint me to a position. And so I've written down all those names on lists of, uh, of God using other people to make things possible in your life. And I can never forget, you know, the people who did that, Muriel Lemon and Nettie Taylor uh, and people like that. And Dick Duran, who was working for the governor at the time, I was appointed to the PUC. And then uh, when I became chairman of the PUC, and then basically in 1979, when Bill Green ran for mayor, Cedar Lois Tucker and Sam Evans pressure William Green, who became mayor, of course, in 1980, to appoint a black as managing director. And then Dick Duran working in the governor's office also had worked with Bill Green when he was a congressman and put me in that position. So, so, and, and again, absolutely, God places people in our pathway to help us yeah. get where we need to go. And, and so you end up as the city manager, first black city manager of Philadelphia, but then you get the tap on the shoulder or the calling to run for mayor of Philadelphia. Talk to us about that journey. Well, well, it was an interesting journey because I always said to young people 
that the thing that you have to recognize that when you're in a job, do the very best job you can do and do the job so well that it would introduce you to another job. And so when I became manager and director, I was so visible around the city that there literally was a committee uh, established to draft me for mayor, even to run against Bill Green, who had appointed me. And I indicated I was not going to do that, but that did not stop them, led by Henry Nicholas uh, from 1199C. They wanted to uh, draft me to run for mayor against Bill Green. I told Bill Green I was not going to do that. But on Election Day in 1982, he met with me and indicated to me that he was not going to run for re-election. And then he looked at me and said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm running for mayor. And he asked me uh, two very important questions. Number one, do you have an organization? And I said, no. Do you have money? I said, no. And he said, well, how are you going to do it? I said, God will provide. Mm. And so the next day, I announced my resignation as managing director. And within 30 days, announced that I was running for mayor. And and within two months, had a million dollars in the bank from that. Just trusting God and believing that God had, had directed my path in this way and believing that if it was not for God, I would not be where I was at that point and trusting God to go on and run. And then and then Frank Rizzo decided that he was going to run, and people just kept saying to me, Frank Rizzo has never lost an election, and you cannot beat him. But this city was amazing at that time. This city rose up, especially African-Americans in this city, and uh, the liberal communities rose up and basically and fundamentally said that we're going to support Wilson Good. Uh, and I spent my time in the street with uh, uh, what we call coffee clatches at that time, going from house to house on blocks and meeting with people and talking to people and getting to know people and just campaigning very hard. And I ended up beating Frank Rizzo by 58,000 votes in the primary of, uh, of, 19, uh, of 1983 and went on and was elected mayor that November and went through four years and came back then Ed Rendell decided who's going to run for me run against me in the second term in the primary I beat him about about the same amount of votes and then ran against Frank Rizzo again in the general election 1987 and beat him this time by 31,000 votes but and was elected mayor and re-elected mayor and uh, I just see all of that as a part of God's plan on my life. I don't know any other way I can explain it, uh, how a uh, sharecropping farmer could leave the South and 30 years to the day almost from when I moved to Philadelphia, uh, ended up being sworn in as the mayor of Philadelphia. 
Truly God, truly God is amazing in all ways yeah, yeah. and in all things. Uh, but, but if I could stick a pin in the Rizzo Wars, Rizzo cast a fairly large shadow uh, in the city of Philadelphia. And I made a note that I really wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about uh, about him and your run against him in the primary first go around and then when he moved to become a Republican and uh, to run against you for a re-election. He served as police commissioner, a lot of controversy there. Uh, he served as mayor, a great deal of controversy there with his racial policies. But then when he ran against you, as you said, you, you beat him by 58,000 votes. But what surprised me when I really researched it, uh, it kind of split the black clergy in Philadelphia. Uh, there were black clergy in Philadelphia that stepped up and supported Rizzo. I mean, talk to us a little bit about uh, what it was like navigating that dynamic. I really did not think about the black clergy who supported Rizzo. Because I knew, I just believed God. I believed that God was going to have a overwhelming majority of the black clergy on my side. And I can just say this today, that without the black clergy out there supporting me, without the black clergy inviting me to their churches, not to campaign, but just to be introduced during my campaign and without some of the churches having uh, organized a structure outside of the church uh, to help me register voters and help me uh, to get ballots out to people. Without, without the black clergy in Philadelphia, I could not have done as well as I did and probably could not have won without the black clergy full support. So there were a few people in the city, a few black clergy members who supported Frank Rizzo, and I I respect the fact that they had the right to do that, but I cannot say enough about the support of black clergy in Philadelphia, both in both elections, and the fact that I think the real difference in the elections was the fact that they did what they had to do within that structure and within the uh, laws to support me and help me to become mayor not once but twice. Absolutely. And then after the, your first victory, he was hired by 1210 WCAU. And you say, I was a young guy like me, know all of this, but I used to get in a lot of trouble in school, Mayor Good. And, and so my dad would take television away from me. So the only thing I had to listen to was radio. Uh, and go figure, now I own radio stations, but I fell in love with radio. And I used to listen to his show during drive time on WCAU, and he used to close out his show every night with the statement, and good night, Wilson, wherever you are. Uh, and he used that platform to come back again as a Republican and run against you. And again, as you said, you, you beat him again. Uh, so now you're a two-term mayor, two-term mayor uh, here in the city of Philadelphia. Your time has come to an end. What were you thinking about as your term was coming to an end? Were you thinking about legacy? Were you thinking about what the next step is? Talk to us a little bit about what was going through your mind. I, 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 was, I was thinking about how fortunate I was to have had the opportunity to come from a sharecropping farm in Seaboard, North Carolina, and to become the first African-American mayor of the fourth largest city in the country. 
and how amazing God is and how amazing God has been in my life and how I could not have been where I was without the mercy and grace of God, God, God in them directing me, uh, and that I give him all the honor and glory for what happened in my life. And and I was thinking about uh, what I would do next, and I was fortunate enough to be appointed by President Bill Clinton as a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Education and spent seven years as a Deputy Assistant Secretary from 1993 until 2000. And then in 2000, I left uh, kind of early in the Clinton administration and came back and organized the Amache program. And uh, that's basically what happened at that point in time. So the Amache program, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because one of the things we talk a lot about here on the show uh, is mentorship the importance of mentorship in our community. Uh, And you started Amachi, and that is a mentorship program. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? The Amachi program was organized in 2000, and it was organized as a way to find mentors for children of incarcerated parents. And what I found out uh, during this process there was 10.7 million children in the country with one of both parents in prison on some type of federal or state supervision. And if we didn't do anything, that 70% of those children was end up in prison themselves. And so the concept which I had initially was to start with, uh, I started with 40 churches in the city, 42 churches in the city, in, in North Philadelphia, in Southwest, South Philadelphia, and in, in Kensington. Uh, and, and basically in, ended up at that point serving thousands of young people in the city, finding churches who came aboard, 42 churches came aboard, 400-some mentors from those 42 churches, and set a national model. We actually created a national model. And within three years, we had started to to expand the program to a few other states. And then within five years, we were in every state in the union. And we had programs in all 50 states and had churches involved, had 6,000 churches across the country involved in this program, and we were able to serve 350,000 children over a period of 10 years and find mentors for those children. And what we learned from that process was, based upon our research, that 60% of those children who participated in our program improved their grades, improved their attendance at school, and improved their behavior that 60% of the children, or two-thirds, rather, improved their grades, improved their behavior, improved their attendance at school. And we found out not only did they do that, but they also, many of them ended up going on to college. And and it's amazing that going back and see those that became doctors now and become doctors and lawyers, 
and teachers and even some of them are running running for office, ran for office. So it, it's amazing uh, the work that happened over that period of time. And so uh, we're talking about 22 years ago when we started that, and the program is still going on, not as strong, as big as it was, because the pandemic has changed the equation for all of that. But we serve over 350,000 children in all 50 states. And out of that, I think there are uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of young people who are better off because of the work that we did. That's absolutely amazing. You're listening to Philly's Favor, 100.7 FM and 99.5 HD3. We are talking to uh, the 96th mayor of Philadelphia, the Honorable Wilson Good. And, sir, it really has been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. And and before we go, I I, I know that Amachi has been a part of your life for over 20 years, but you didn't stop there. Uh, You also started Self, Inc., uh, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Self Inc.? In 1982, when I was serving as managing director for the city, the health commissioner, I was in my office on Saturday, and he called me and said, Director, look out at Love Park. And I looked out at Love Park from my office on the 16th floor, and I saw all these men just standing there and they were homeless. And that night, that very same night, that that, uh, October night, we got uh, bids from the Riverview Home for the Aged and got uh, food from the prison and got a fire house at 11th and Warden Warden Street in South Philadelphia and set up the first homeless shelter program in the basement of that firehouse that night, that very same night. And and so in 1989, Sylvester Outley organized a program called Self, Inc. And when I left office in 1992, I became a member of the board and subsequently became the chairman. And then and for a period of time, ran the organization on a volunteer basis full time and after that after that we have hired a very talented young man uh, named Michael Henson who's now running the program but we are the largest homeless shelter program in the city of Philadelphia now about 10 11 million dollar program that houses men and women, but more men than women across the city. And we also provide housing across the city as well. What an impressive life you have lived so far. And and it truly is a testament to God's grace uh, and God's mercy. I, I really, really thank you for taking time to be with us today. And out of all that you've done, then ministry, uh, Eastern Theological Seminary, which is now Palmer Theological Seminary, uh, Associate Minister at First Baptist Church of Pascal. You stay busy. You stay busy, Mayor Good. You stay busy. 
well, my, my, my wife asked me when I was going to retire, and I said to her, if you can find retirement in the Bible, I will retire. <laughs> and so I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. That's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, but, uh, but I think that what I've done is a tribute, especially with the homeless program, is a tribute to my mother. We were living on the sharecropping farm, and this white man came to the house, a hobo, we called him back then, a homeless person, and said, I'm hungry. And I I was curious as to what my mother would do. She never hesitated. The segregated, deep south, did deeply segregated, invited them in and said, come on and put them at the table. This is for any of us at Eden. And so my mother set an example for me that you take care of those no matter what they have done or how you perceive them. If someone out there who is human, who is one of God's children, you feed them, uh, you shelter them, and you take care of them. And that's part of what my thought in life is as well. The Honorable Mayor Wilson Good, 96 Mayor of Philadelphia. Sir, thank you for all that you've done uh, for folks like me and 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 for for the city of Philadelphia, for Pennsylvanians, for Americans all around. You've been a great example, sir, uh, and you are a great example. So we thank you uh, for all the work you've done. Thank you for coming into the pastor's office today. Uh, and when you get a chance, please tell Pastor Simmons, Pastor Mason said hello. I will, I will text him right after this call and let him know I talk with you by right here. All right, sir. Thank you and be blessed. We'll talk again to you real soon. Right, you take care, right? All right, bye-bye. While you're listening to Phyllis Faber. Yeah.